Hello and welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim and Sergey, and you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we're very excited to have Mona Bijor of Jor, and of course, of many other companies and projects that she's started since then. But Jor was Mona's first company, and we're going to dig into a lot of the why and how she built that business. She also just released a book called Startups and Downs that goes into the details, so stuff that you won't be able to find online about how she developed the business, and also stories from other entrepreneurs that sort of back up a lot of the things that she learned throughout her journey. But Mona has an amazing story. She built a company from nothing to billions of dollars in transaction value on that platform, ran the company for eight years, 40 under 40. There's so many accolades to talk about that we're not going to be able to do in this intro because you want to hear right from Mona. Uh, So Mona, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, maybe there's more history here, but Jor was your first business? Correct. Okay, great. And as a first-time entrepreneur, oftentimes, you know, we get very excited. People are excited, especially now with all the Gary Vee culture of everybody should start a company, of launching businesses. And I think that you, throughout the first part of your career, you were able to observe a lot of interesting problems in the industry you worked in, in uh, retail and branding. And you, at some point, decided that you need to start a company around this, that you actually have to solve this problem. Can you walk us through that decision-making process? I know that you grew up surrounded by entrepreneurs. Both of your parents are entrepreneurs. But still, you were, uh, I imagine, had a pretty lucrative salary in the job that you had. And what made you take that leap from having an idea, wanting to solve something, and then saying, I'm going to be the one that does it? Yeah, I mean, I had worked in fashion and retail for five or six years, and I had kind of seen the ups and downs within fashion and retail. And those ups and downs mainly consisted of devaluing the brand by retailers, just deeply discounting their product because they needed to move inventory or, you know, senior leaders making decisions that were very short term in nature to appease Wall Street rather than kind of long term strategic decisions that would bode well for the brand long term. And so after I had my second child, I was on maternity leave and I was like, I don't want to go work for someone else. I've kind of done that. And I'd rather make my own mistakes than make the mistakes of someone else's. So that was kind of the first decision in terms of thinking. It's like, I'd, I'd want to like build something from scratch and I'd rather kind of like go through the trials and tribulations and see if I can kind of protect the long-term equity of a brand, if I could make long-term decisions, but then, you know, really solving a true pain point. So then I started blogging every day. No one was really reading my blog. This was back in like 2009. And I read every trade journal within fashion and retail because that was the industry that I had expertise in. And I started blogging about the opportunity, like what were the holes? What were the missing pieces within that industry? And I did that for about three months. And that discipline actually allowed me to come up with this business. And this business is Jor, which is historically brands and retailers would buy goods at a trade show in a physical showroom. And they couldn't really Google the best plaid shirt because 
they would have to physically go to Milan and Paris and New York to find the best plaid shirt to put in their stores. And so it dawned on me that there was a need for an online marketplace where you could discover, search, and actually transact for wholesale product. Hmm. Now, you had, at this point, a bunch of domain expertise. How old were you when you decided to do this? I was 30. You got it. So you were 30. You, at this point, had been a consultant. You had an MBA from Wharton. You had various roles at these different fashion companies. You understood the business intimately, and that's probably partly how the idea came to you. But was this an idea that developed over that three-month period? Was there like an aha moment at some point? Or did you have a, a while before that and kind of connected the dots at some point when you decided, I think I want to do something on my own? I, it was a pretty aha moment because I was toying around with maybe I should start my own athleisure brand. Athleisure is really popular now, but that was really early and I kind of saw that that was coming. And so I was like, I want to start my own brand. And then I realized, well, if I got a shitty location in a trade show, no one would buy my product and I'd have to put a lot of money into it and the margins are really low. I don't want to be one. I actually want to be the platform for many was the aha moment. And once I realized that, I think once you get a burst of inspiration, inspiration is short lived, similar to willpower. And so you want to take a lot of action. So I took I started taking a lot of action, not spending a lot of money, but started doing a lot of research on like, who's doing this? If I thought of it, then it's in everyone's thought of it. So who's doing it wrong? Is there an opportunity? Is it a big market? You know, so taking a lot of kind of research-based action to see if it was viable. I love that. Inspiration uh, is fleeting and you have to take a lot of action in a short period of time. I love that. And then you're forced because you see some results and then you're forced to act more. So let's talk about that then. You did this research. You decided that I want to build a platform, a technology platform, even though you had never built technology before. And also starting a platform is also kind of a risky proposition because you then have to build up a marketplace of people that are going to be using the platform. So there's a lot to be done here. What was the first step that you took toward making it a reality? The first step really like in August of 2009 was like, okay, I don't have engineering experience. So I'm going to hire an agency to help with the branding. So we're going to do the branding. I did the wireframes because I knew that this platform had to be kind of really user-friendly or the fashion industry would not adopt it because I had so much empathy being a buyer and a seller that, you know, you kind of have a minute to win it. So you have to make the user interface really easy. So I didn't dole out the wireframes. I did it myself from the vantage point of the customer. I hired an agency to kind of do the front end, you know, the skinning the website. And then I hired a few developers in Greenpoint to build the back end. And because I was bootstrapping the business, I really wanted to kind of build it relatively quickly. So we started in August and we launched in February. Hmm. And so it was really like, what's the MVP? I didn't know what MVP was at the time, but I was like, well, what's the minimum required where I could get brands? And I can't launch a dead marketplace. I have to have brands join so they can invite their retailers. So what do I need to do to go live for the next trade show, which was in February, five or six months later? Hmm, interesting. And I like how you took the path of least resistance in both cases. I mean, in the beginning, you were thinking, maybe I should start a brand of my own. And when you realize that there's a lot more risk involved with that, a lot more potential capital investment, everything, you decided what's a path of least resistance. And to you, this idea of managing multiple brands in a platform made more sense. And what Jor ended up doing is connecting wholesalers with brands. So talk us through then between August and February, 
you're getting ready to launch this platform, you're going to go to a trade show. What were you doing to make sure that when you do launch, you had a bunch of brands signed up? This is the thing that I see with a lot of founders is that they don't work backwards enough. So it's like, what milestone do you want to hit to get you closer to your vision? And so February was a big milestone. And so I said, in February, I think it would be meaningful if I went live with 40 brands and those 40 brands were forced contractually to invite their retailers so that I could get this one-way network effect that would be relatively cheap. So I could spend all my time, which is at that point money, getting the brands and they would do the heavy lifting on getting the retailers to join. So as my developers were building from basically, they started in October and they we went live in February, I was pounding the pavement with one other person who was an XPR person who would just make phone calls and she would just get me meetings with brands. And then she would go to the meetings with me because she didn't want me to feel like a one woman operation. So we would go and we would pitch these brands with pretty wireframes, essentially this big book that showed kind of this was the homepage and this is how you're going to upload your collection and this is how they're going to see it. And, you know, we visited three or four brands a day, nonstop. And we leveraged people along the way to help us, you know, say this brand doesn't want to do this right now. We would get recommendations from other brands. So if like Kate Spade didn't want to do it, they would, you know, share another brand that might be interested. And so we got 40 brands and we hit that target. And then from there, it was just, well, we have these 40 brands and those 40 brands were like-minded. So it was easy to go to other brands in that kind of sphere of reference and be like, well, X, Y, and Z is on. So you're missing out if you're not on. Let's uh, talk about real quick how you got this person to do all this cold calling for you and generate three to four meetings a day. That is substantial. Obviously, you were also working and generating those meetings. But three to four meetings a day is a lot, especially for a startup that no one has heard of or cares about yet. How did you generate so many meetings and how did you incentivize this person, this former PR person to help you? Uh, did you pay her? Did you give her a bunch of equity? What happened there? Uh, no, I, I paid her. A, she really believed in the idea. Her name was Abby. And she really felt like the industry needed this transition. So I think it was one, she had passion for the idea. Two, yes, she was getting paid, but it was nominal for the amount of work that she was doing. Three, we both were just motivated by meeting our target. Because, you know, you have one or two good meetings and that kind of feeds the fire. I mean, you have for every one or two good meetings, you have three or four bad ones and you just kind of have to pick yourself up. But she just has this personality where she's super tenacious. It was helpful that she was in PR because PR people are used to being told no all the time. So she already had developed that mindset. And how did you find her? A friend of a friend. Okay. So you started asking around for help? Yeah. I just, I mean, I started asking everyone I knew for people. And that's how we hired our first kind of five or six people. That's great. And with these brands, so you got 40 on board, but what does getting them on board mean? Did you actually have contracts signed? Was there, were they paying you or was it just, hey, you're contractually obligated to sign up and put your inventory on there? All of the above. By December, we were getting paid clients because for me, it was like, I had to prove to myself that I could monetize the business early on. I wasn't going to ask anyone for money unless I knew I could monetize the business. So yes, we were getting contracts signed. They were exclusive contracts, meaning they couldn't be on any like 
similar platform. It sounds like you were a good negotiator already by this point. Well, I wanted to make sure that we developed for all the work that we were doing in, in any business, you want to make sure you're developing this competitive moat around your business. So if anyone says, oh, look over there, Jor is doing this thing, we should do it too. We want to make sure we have a massive head start over any competitor. And how did you know what to charge them right away? And what, what did you charge them? Yeah. <laughs> Pricing in, in the beginning, it's kind of like you throw a number out there. And if they don't flinch, then you're like, oh, that was per quarter, actually, not annually. <laughs> 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 you know, so it's really just reading the room and kind of throwing numbers out there and kind of doing your research. We would do a lot of research before we went in and pitched, you know, so... If a fashion brand didn't show at New York Fashion Week because they're running out of money, we probably wouldn't ask them for a lot of capital. Do, so pricing was kind of all over the place. Do you remember what the number you threw out at that point was that you were surprised that somebody said yes? $5,000 annually. We didn't even have a live site, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. we started just charging $5,000 after that. This is just a licensing fee to get access yeah, to the platform? Exactly. And then you would charge a transaction fee? Yeah. And we didn't even have, we didn't launch with transaction capabilities. And then once we launched, we realized, well, what's the point of putting your collection or your catalog online if there's no transaction capability? So we had to hustle. That was a mistake on my part, like not launching with transaction. Mm. Well, as you said, it's something that you figure out as you're going along. How many meetings would it typically take to get a contract signed or even for you to start talking about money? Did you do that in the first meeting? Yeah, we did it in the first meeting. And I mean, it could anywhere take between three to four meetings. And even later in our life cycle, it took that because, you know, as you launch more features, you know, you have to involve more parties because it's not just the salespeople using it. It's other areas within the business that are using the, the mm -hmm. product. So from the get-go, you decided to bootstrap the business first. And one of the things that you talk about in your book, Startups and Downs, is the importance of raising money when you have some power. Can you unlock that a little bit? Tell us what that means and how that played out for you. I learned very early in my life, just being raised by two immigrant parents, that when you're in any type of negotiation, A, you have to kind of be non-emotional. If you're very attached to what you want, then the negotiation isn't going to go well. And you have to have the ability to kind of walk away. And so that lesson was kind of drilled into me as a young child, just watching my own parents negotiate, wanting things, and then having my parents walk away on my behalf. <laughs> so I think that is kind of the premise for that statement, where I see so many founders desperate for capital, and they just will do whatever it takes to kind of raise money. And you don't want to be in that situation because money is really a commodity at this point. It's the market is so frothy. It's so easy to raise capital. Or let me rephrase, there's an abundance of money out there. But if you're raising when you have some semblance of power, then the negotiation becomes easier and you can get better terms and you can get better partners and you can get better quality money. And so it's better to go to VCs when you've kind of de-risked the investment. You know, they're willing to take some risk, but it's a fallacy to think that VCs take a whole bunch of risk. They're willing to take a risk on like one or two open items. But if there's like five or six issues that they can't get their heads around, they're probably not going to invest. And so the notion of bootstrapping for me is like, well, how can I de-risk the investment so that it's really easy to get funding? Mm -hmm. How can I use the money that I'm putting into the business 
to answer the questions that VCs might have or the concerns that VCs might have. Yeah, and we just did a, a series called Fundraising 101 uh, on the show. And, you know, some people are surprised to find out that there are entrepreneurs out there that can close a whole round in three to four weeks. And then there's other entrepreneurs that can spend six plus months raising money, even if it's an angel or seed round. And that is the difference. If you have a runaway train, if you will, if you have something that's already working, it's going to be a competitive deal, meaning people are going to want to give you money because, as you said, there are plenty of people with money. And you'll be able to do it on your own terms and it'll feel easier. Not that's easy, right. but it'll feel easier. That's right. And you actually have an interesting story here with the first capital that you took where you got a term sheet for one thing and then there was a bait and switch that happened and a crazy situation that followed. Can you tell us that story? It's a long story and I kind of go through it in my book, but essentially it was a term sheet for $5 million and it was stipulated on you know me hiring some people and they didn't like the people that I brought forward. And so then they tried to lower the terms or kind of renegotiate the terms. And I ended up walking away. And most people don't walk away from VCs. It's kind of like a slap in the face. And so I had to pay back this note for like $600,000 because I walked away from these VCs and they were going to take my company. And most VCs will never take your company, but they were kind of old school and are kind of old school and they threatened to take it and I believe them. And so luckily I had the metrics so I could get another VC on board in a relatively short period of time. But it was really tough. I mean, mentally it was really tough to A, walk away, B, kind of go through a process with VCs who, I mean, they essentially wanted me to hire one or two of their own people, meaning people who had worked for their portfolio companies in the past just so I felt like they could kind of babysit me. And so that just kind of felt wrong. And I think you, you know, the lesson for me is like, you got to go with your gut. You got to find partners that you trust. You got to find partners that are on the same page. You know, some partners really will push profitability. Other partners will push just growth at all costs. And knowing those things before you get into bed with them is super, super important. Yeah, you know, speaking of that, that's something that, we see over and over again, especially because we meet with a lot of founders that either have already started building businesses that are going to be venture scale or look like that to investors, or that's what they want to do. But there's, especially now, like you said, there's a sort of a frothy investment situation right now where there's a lot of money chasing fewer deals. People may feel like it's easier to raise money now more than ever. A lot of people do try because they feel like it's just something that you have to do in order to have a successful or fast growth business. Yet we do see a lot of people struggling with the decision of, do I take on venture money because that means I'm going to have to grow at all costs? Like you said, for the majority of the cases, investors want you to spend that money if they give it to you. Or do I grow at my own pace, create a business that creates a great life for me and gives me options for what I want to do? Maybe scale it or grow it at a slower pace. Did you have that conundrum at all? Was that decision clear for you? And and when you did take that capital, how did you manage expectations properly so you could grow at your own rate? I think that when we took money from the first time, it was very clear that we had to do X, Y, and Z. And we had our own internal milestones that we wanted to to hit with that capital. And I think the second time we raised money, we were kind of nearing profitability. And so it was like, well, did we raise too much? Like, did we really need that much? And so, you know, it's it's really tough because 
you can have a really, really big business, but there's ways, especially now, to run it super efficiently. And I don't see that enough in businesses. I think people end up, for the most part, that are after their Series A, end up raising too much money. I mean, that's my my takeaway. So I'm working on a platform-based business in an entirely different industry right now, and I'm trying to actually do it without capital. Hmm. Because I think now, you know, technology has become very, very efficient. And, you know, the way to sell into institutions or consumers um, has to be much more creative than just kind of throwing money at Facebook and throwing money at Google anyways. So I'm actually trying to see if I can build something as big or if not bigger than my last company without raising capital. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, Sergey's a venture investor. We advise companies that get financing from venture. But on the show, we constantly talk about the fact that you should not raise venture. Or if you don't need to, you shouldn't. And I remember actually we published an episode about how most entrepreneurs raise money or fund their companies, which is through credit card debt, quite frankly, uh, other kind of debt, or by getting a side gig so that they can fund their own business. And we had a couple of VCs that were subscribed to our newsletter, uh, unsubscribed because of that. But you know what? We think that most people should understand that almost no business gets funded. I mean, 99% of companies will not raise venture money or will not raise money from a professional investor. You might get a friend's family to help you out. But if you rely on that being the path for success, you're not optimizing for being a resourceful entrepreneur, which is really what should be more interesting to you. Because as an entrepreneur, you get to build your own business. You get to make every decision for your own company yourself. But also the onus of creating a business that is actually sustainable is on you. For sure, there's a case to be made to raise money. If you want to scale, if you want to hire a bunch of people, it does make sense. But for a lot of people, that should not be the default. And by the way, if you have the lens where you are resourceful, and then you decide to raise money, it'll be easier anyways, as we already talked about. Yeah, I just want to add to that. I mean, one is, do you want to be someone else's racehorse is the question you need to ask. I mean, most people start businesses because they don't want to work for someone else. They want to work for themselves. But as soon as you take VC money, you work for someone else. You answer to your board, right? So that was kind of pretty eye-opening for me. I truly don't want to work for someone else. right? And so I'm not willing to be a racehorse for a VC. And that's essentially what you are. And number two is, you know, raising capital is not you being successful. Raising capital is just you selling a piece of your business that you created, your intellectual property. That's not success. A lot of people would view that as failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we had a gentleman on the show, Kerry Smith, he founded a company called Big Ass Fans. And one of the things he was really proud of is he he sold it for $500 million. He never raised uh, any outside financing. Yeah. The goalpost becomes a little bit different because you raise even, let's say, $5 million. There's no reality where you can sell the business for even $10 million and you make any money, right? You need to sell for a much higher multiple, whereas if you didn't raise any money, you can become very wealthy by doing that. So it's a really important decision. But, you know, one thing that I want to dig into a little bit is that, you know, you got those 40 initial brands, you launched the platform, you raised some money, and now you have to spend that money and you were able to grow the organization to billions of dollars in transaction volume, which is really, really difficult to do. What are some of the repeatable processes that you created in the company with that funding as it relates to the product side and managing the engineers and the customer acquisition side 
that allowed you to scale to that level? I, I'm sure that it's very complicated and it took years to develop, so it might be difficult to answer this question, but is there any insight you can give to our audience about what you did after getting those initial customers and then figuring out how to actually create something scalable? First is we over-indexed on customer service. We wanted to make sure that 100% of every brand's orders were going through our platform. And so to actually get a brand and put every single order through the platform is difficult because a lot of times their sales teams are dispersed. So some are in Paris and some are in Milan, some are in Australia. So we needed to make sure that we had offices in all of those areas to support. And 10 years ago, fashion was very new to technology. They were kind of scared of it. We would send people to the brands during their shows and help them tap in their orders on an iPad. Sometimes we would loan iPads to the businesses because they didn't, you know, now it's kind of everyone has an iPad or a device, but back then that wasn't the case. And so we would loan iPads just to make sure every iPad would go through. And that allowed our engineers to get real-time feedback because we would be on the ground with sales teams kind of on a daily basis. So we over-indexed on customer service. So I hired a lot of customer service people to be out in the field. We had a lot of triaging. I mean, for consumer-facing sites, Bugs are common, but we wanted to kind of be like this bug-free environment. And the worst thing would be someone would lose an order, and that never happened. Mm. And, you know, so I think it was really kind of, A, first over-indexing on customer service, which then dovetailed into our QA and product teams because we got all of this feedback. We actually saw literally day in and day out people using our product. So we would say, okay, that button doesn't make sense or it's not intuitive to check out here, or we can't see the product, so the thumbnails have to be bigger. So that early on was definitely attributed to our success because we got known in the marketplace that we were on the customer's side. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, you guys, it sounds like are growing pretty steadily. Was there any inflection point, like a partnership or anything that really accelerated the growth for you? I mean, there were a few inflection points. I mean, when I first started, you know, everyone was like, this is a great idea, but you're never going to get a luxury brand or you're never going to get a luxury department store. And so I think those were the two big milestones when we got luxury brands joining the platform and we got luxury department stores, retailers joining the platform. Those were huge inflection points. Now, it sounds like things are going pretty well at this point. Obviously, a lot of ups and downs in startups in general. That's literally the name of your book, of your book. But is there maybe a moment, aside from the moment where you had issues with the investors, that stands out as a really difficult moment for you, a key co-founder leaving? Yeah. And actually, if I can, I, I want to speak to a specific moment in the book uh, that I think that I want to touch on, which is a very sober moment where you talk about uh, mistakes that you've made and the fact that you wished you handled people's transitions out of the company better. You know, when when a key person leaves the organization at a very difficult time, in your own words, it feels like they're screwing you over. It feels like they don't care about the company after you've invested all of this time and effort and money into them. So um, talk about that, even your own realization that you were even doing that uh, and awareness of that. I think that's that's impressive that you became aware of it. But maybe if there's a specific story of a time in the company where a key person left, you could share with us during a difficult time where it was a really bad moment for them to leave and, and what transpired. I've had so many of those stories. It's hard to kind of pick one person or, you know, but I think that, you know, it's been 
kind of that whole journey was really eye-opening because when you're building a business, it's so personal, especially for the founders or people kind of the founding team, people who are with you from the get-go. And so it's so personal when you're fighting the big fight and then someone decides that this place is not for them for you know whatever reason. And so that was like really challenging for me because you go through these whole slew of emotions where it's like, first you're like surprised and you really should never be surprised because you should be so in touch with people that you kind of know that they're unhappy or things are not working for them. Or so maybe there's an element of surprise, maybe there's not um, because you've been ignoring it. And then you go through kind of like this anger um, where it's like, how dare you leave me? And then you go through this, okay, what are we going to do? How do I insert myself into the process when you shouldn't really insert? You know, it's a, a hole is an opportunity, not a challenge, right? So it's really just like taking a deep breath and saying, well, what does this mean? You know, what opportunity does this afford for someone else in the company? Or is this an opportunity to bring someone in that can elevate the team? I didn't look at it that way. I mean, you know, it took me a long time to start looking at it that way. I definitely took it very personally. And I think that um, what I should have done early on, I didn't do this until probably like year six or so, seven, is hire kind of a head of people or someone who would be on the pulse of what was happening throughout the teams and really kind of just be a sounding board for people. Like it was kind of me and then my direct reports and then the team. And so I think company structure had a lot to do with this. And I think we could have organized ourselves better, had people in place so that the transition would go smoothly. And then the send-offs, you know, like I didn't do a good job sending people off and wishing them well. And, you know, the realization is that they're still an alum of your company and they're still can kind of, you know, recommend people to come work for you or, you know, it's not all terrible and bad and it's not bad blood. And so all of that stuff was just like bad, bad judgment. You know, one thing I want to mention and one of the things that the book does from the get go is you list out seven sort of core tenets or principles of entrepreneurship. And what I think is honestly what makes a good uh, entrepreneur that's likely to be more successful one of the things you talk about is the importance of self-belief. Now, we hear that all the time in entrepreneurship. I think the way you describe it is actually a little bit more helpful than most people talk about it because it's not as meaningful when you just say believe in yourself. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because, you know, you mentioned throughout the book, but also just in this podcast alone, there's just so many ups and downs. And self-doubt is something that almost every at least smart person, I think, faces is there a balance between the self-doubt and the belief? Is there a perfect amount? And is there, you know, maybe something that, you know, if you don't have enough of it, you're just not born to be an entrepreneur? Uh, or maybe you can talk through how, if you don't have that balance, how you can create it. Because self-doubt yeah. is just a natural part of the process. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'll, I'll try my best to do it. So first is kind of like self-esteem, right? So self-esteem is the covenant that you have with yourself. Do you have the ability to keep your word to yourself. So if I say I'm really focused on my spiritual values, my financial values, my relationship values, and let's say I have kind of daily habits within each of those, right? Like I want to meditate every day or I want to work out every day. Well, if you don't do those things consistently, then you're not keeping your word to yourself and it's going to be really hard to cultivate self-esteem. So I hate when people talk about imposter syndrome and like just walk the walk and like be the per, you know, that doesn't really work unless you have self-esteem with yourself. You have a covenant with yourself and you keep your word to yourself. So that's number one. 
Number two is like, as an entrepreneur, you have to kind of be an optimist. You have to believe that everything is possible. Can't let your past mistakes hold you back or you can't be encumbered by failures that you've experienced. You know, every day is a new day. You have to kind of have that thinking. But as a former bio major, my approach has been to be kind of a very rational pessimist, if you will. So, you know, in science, you have a hypothesis and then you spend all your time trying to disprove it. So it doesn't mean that you don't believe in your vision. You actually ultimately believe in your vision, but you're doing everything that you possibly can to say, you know what, this one-way network effect that I believe is going to help me get to the next tipping point is not really going to work. And you have to go through the visualization process to be like, well, what are all the ways that this is not going to work? What are all the ways that I'm wrong about this? And so you have to kind of unpack it. And so that's the approach that I use. Obviously, you have to have a long-term vision. I see a lot of entrepreneurs that don't really have a seven to 10-year vision in place kind of like, what's the ultimate? If there was no resource constraints, what's the ultimate thing that you were going to achieve? And then basically build three strategies that take two or three years to get to your vision. I don't see a lot of founders doing that. It's funny that you mentioned that sort of looking at all the things that could go wrong. I recently read a bunch of people on Twitter talking about the fact that Marcus Aurelius and other Stoic thinkers, they would go through this process of inversion, which is the same thing where they think about what's the worst possible thing that could happen. They would think about that first. But how do you make sure that you don't kind of go into a deep hole with that? In other words, into a negative mindset where now all you can do is picture all the bad things that could happen and get demotivated through that process. Like, how would you pull yourself out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally you need to believe that your biggest job as an entrepreneur is to be resourceful. So I see so many people caught up in their constraints. You know, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. Your job is to be resourceful. Like, don't be that person who gives up because they don't have X, Y, and Z. Don't be an entrepreneur if you're not going to be resourceful. That is like the number one criteria. Like, you are going to do whatever it takes to figure it out. And I love when the problem is hard. Like, I love when you're kind of like going down this rabbit hole because that means that 99% of the people who attempt to solve this problem are going to give up. Hmm. Don't be one of those people that's going to give up. I like that advice, actually, because as an entrepreneur, whether you like it or not, that is what ultimately translates to success is it's your ability to be resilient, your ability to not give up when the going gets hard because things will get hard and most people would give up. But that is where the opportunity is for you. And if you're not good at that, there are ways to get better at it. There are ways to kind of get desensitized to taking risks. You could try it in your own job by asking for new responsibilities, by volunteering for things that you've never done before and putting yourself in situations that your brain will tell you are risky but actually aren't. That's one way to get used to it and develop that callus. And if you're not ready, that's fine. You started this company when you were already mature enough to have an understanding of how various areas of the business work. You were a management consultant. You were literally consulting other companies on how to be better. So you can build that optimism, that domain expertise, maybe even that positive thinking, so to speak, because you know what you're talking about. But at some point, that doubt will come through and you do need to push through it. 
when I see people who give up, whether it's entrepreneurship or just in general, it's really because they don't have a compelling reason to do it. The reasons that they've created for themselves are not compelling enough. So, you know, the why, Simon Sinek and everyone else who writes about it. So, I mean, it's like so many people try to lose weight every year and they give up because they're like, well, I want to like look good for this vacation that I have planned or I want to look good for my boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. But they're not compelling. Like my girlfriend will still love me if, you know, I'm 10 pounds overweight or 20 pounds overweight or like you can talk yourself out of those whys. And so I think it's really like when you're at a place where you want to give up, it's really going back to why are you doing why are you so most of the people building businesses or doing anything are pretty smart. They can there's an opportunity cost to building a business. You could be, you know, working at a fancy job and making a great salary and coming home and not having to worry about anything. And so I think it's really going back to the why and like, why why are you doing it? And are the reasons compelling enough? And I think everything that you set out to do should have kind of that compelling reason. And it takes a while. When I mentor founders, it's like, why are you coming to me? What can I help you with? Nine times out of 10, we focus on the why part and the vision, strategy, and tactics because it's really like not the first five responses on the why. It's like when you dig really, really deep. And most people don't dig really deep. So how do you know whether the why that you have is the right one that's going to keep you going? How did you find that for yourself? And now that you've had an opportunity to work with so many entrepreneurs, how do you know when they found it? Because on the worst day possible or the day after, you're still getting out of bed in the morning. You need to have a why that gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. That's a really good note to end on, I think, as well, is at some point, you know, I mean, sometimes it's easy to be on autopilot. It's easy to work towards a vague success. But unless you define it for yourself and you take the time to do that, which it sounds like is what you're doing with these entrepreneurs that you mentor, you are actually more likely to give up and it becomes even riskier. So do define your why. In your case, I think it was setting up that seven to tier, 10 year goal, knowing what you're working towards. And then it'll be clear why you should get up that morning and try again, even if yesterday wasn't a great day. Mona Bajor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Definitely check out Mona's book, Startups and Downs, The Secrets of Resilient Entrepreneurs. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's a relatively quick read. Mona did a great job of not only telling her story in depth and opening up a lot about a lot of issues of, uh, of entrepreneurship, but also backing up every single chapter with stories from other founders uh, that had similar experiences so that you know that it's the it's the real thing. It's legit. Mona, thank you for writing this book. And thank you so much for sharing your story on The Mentors. Thanks so much for having me.